I was either going to have to be open and honest about what was going on, or I was going to risk the end of my story aligning with a lie. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I believe that stories save us, and that's why I've spent my life immersed in books. First as a writing professor, and now as an award-winning author who leads women's writing and wellness workshops and retreats. I find that no matter how zen we strive to be, life rarely goes as planned. But stories are our steadfast companions. And since the last few years have brought huge transitions to everyone, including me, I wanted to talk to other women who have lived real lives and have been audacious enough to share all the messy, joyous, complicated bits. I thought I could learn a thing or two from them about writing and healing and about, well, being human. And it's been one of the greatest thrills of my life. So join me for powerful conversations with today's top women writers and wellness experts who go beyond the surface level and into that deep, raw, honest place, the heart of the story. Hi, friends. Today, we're having a really powerful conversation about bravery. And I don't mean the external kind of bravery where it's skydiving or some grand adventure, but more of that internal bravery. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're part of something that feels really comfortable, like living in a certain area, but your heart yearns for more but you don't have any guarantees that a change will bring goodness to you and you have to decide what to do to stay the course or dive into the unknown. Well, we're covering all of this in today's conversation with the incredible author, Natalie Frank, who just released a book called Gutsy. Natalie is an author, an entrepreneur, a community builder. She calls herself a mama bear for small businesses. She was the chief evangelist at HoneyBook, but now she is the head of community over at Flowdesk. And she is a powerhouse female professional And she's had to make a lot of big decisions, big, big decisions that have required tons of courage and bravery. But she's also had to face those in her personal life as well. We will talk about the brain surgery that she had. We will talk about her infertility and IVF journey. We will talk about the moments where she had big choices and big fears and what she did about all of that. I loved this conversation with Natalie Frank, and I know that you will too. Friends, you are in for a treat today because we are going to cover all things writing and life and entrepreneurship. And I couldn't have thought of a better guest to have on the show than Natalie Frank, who has a brand new book out called Gutsy, which I devoured in one evening and have dog-eared and have underlines. And I'm so, so excited that you're here, Natalie. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Nidhi. I'm so excited to be here. 
Oh, yay. Well, there are a million things I want to dive into, but maybe we can start by you sharing with the listeners what Gutsy is all about. Gutsy is all about learning to live with bold, brave, and boundless courage. It is a book that I wrote because in my interactions with successful entrepreneurs over and over and over again over the course of the last decade and a half, I have been confronted by the fact that none of us truly outgrow this fear of what other people think. And that led me on an exploration of, well, why is that? Why do we care about the opinions of others? Coupled with an understanding that the thing holding so many people back from going after what they want in life isn't failure itself, but it's fear. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of these merging of concepts and a desire to really talk about what courage looks like in this moment, in this season, uniquely for each of us and how we learn to live these lives of bravery. Mm. What does that really mean? Mm. How do we implement it? And I got nerdy along the way. Yeah, I know as you read it, I I brought in all of the uh, all of the nerdy neuroscience that I'm known to uh, awkwardly quote at dinner parties, which doesn't make me, you know, the the most fun one to have in the room, but uh, certainly makes it interesting. Well, just last night, my husband, son, and I were talking about how much we love the nerd parts of ourselves. So I fully embraced the nerd out. <laughs> so fear. Oh my gosh! If if there's anyone out there who can't relate to the feeling of, of deep fear and worry, then I want to know where they're living and what they're eating and drinking because I want some of that. Um, so maybe you can share with us what fear has looked like in your personal life that you've had to overcome. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, for me, the fears tend to be pretty straightforward in my life. I really believe that the fear itself isn't original. It's just the way in which it manifests. And so it's been everything from like the fear of being vulnerable, whether that is in my personal relationships or professionally, you know, for folks who do know me and maybe have been following for a little while, then you might know parts of my story from being diagnosed with a benign brain tumor to going through neurosurgery six years ago to navigating infertility treatment. Um, and again, infertility resulting from that brain tumor and my journey with that towards our two miracle babies and you know, going from someone who had built a business and had created a perception for myself of being this strong, professional, successful woman and recognizing that I needed to break down the walls that I had built and the things I called a brand and I called mm -hmm. professional, but really were a way to hide the true versions of me, the broken, messy bits of me in order to share about that season, about those hardships with my health, with our family planning, because I began to recognize that there can be such immense purpose and power in sharing our struggle and allowing it to be a guidebook for somebody else. So the fear in that of, of being vulnerable, of being criticized, of what other people would think, obviously a theme uh, in Gutsy, which by the way, I don't know if any other writers can resonate with this, but I tend to write about the things I struggle with the most. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's definitely a core fear and it just bubbles up in its own unique ways. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would say, you know, fear for me also, though, has looked like a fear of time and how fleeting it is and learning to reprogram my relationship from a place of fear when it comes to navigating time towards a challenge of hope from the standpoint that, you know, I, I think I really took time for granted 
And so at different points in our lives, I should say, everyone kind of comes to grasp the understanding that the time is our most precious resource, that it's fleeting and it's finite and it's not guaranteed. I spent most of my 20s never aware of that. And mm -hmm. then when I went in for brain surgery, I had to really confront that head on. I had to confront the reality that life would look very different on the other side of that surgery. And I didn't know what it would be. I didn't know what I would be like. I, I didn't know. And so I think I realized how precious time was and it forced me to reevaluate absolutely everything about my life. Mm -hmm. And it really, really created, I think, a deep sense of fear, a fear of, you know, again, almost in a way, a fear that overtook the fear of not being enough and the fear of being criticized. Instead, the fear of not living the life that I had been given, mm -hmm. a fear of allowing fear to sit in the driver's seat to hold me back. Because I think I started to think more about um, regrets. Regrets. Mm -hmm. And I, again, in, in the book, I share about one of the top regrets of the dying being, I wish I had lived the life that I always desired to live instead of always trying to live into this life that other people expected from me. And for me, that that really forced me to confront, I think, some of the patterns of behavior, some of the dreams I had put on hold, some of the moments where I didn't allow myself to even have an opinion um, mm -hmm. or to give that opinion out of out of fear, instead of realizing that time is fleeting and I have to be willing to be bold. I have to be willing to be brave. I have to be willing to use the talents that I've been given to the best of my ability, you know, rather than allow time to pass me by. And again, let me know how much I owe you for this therapy session because I'm already, <laughs> we're, we're, we're no. barreling into it and I'm already like burying no. the soul, but no, you know, no. that's, that's the truth. Mm. I love so much of what you've talked about because I feel like when you're confronted with something that is, is life or death, it minimizes a lot of things that you thought were a big deal before and you realize in the face of that we're not. And then right. on the flip side, it creates this big monster fear of, oh, wait a minute, what am I doing with my life? Mm -hmm. And some listeners know my story, but a couple of years ago, my father passed away at age 57 from cancer. And so it did a similarly clarifying thing for me and for my family of just, okay, that trivial thing that I'd been really obsessing over, it, it doesn't even matter at this point. But then it was this very confronting moment of if my time was short here, am I living the way that I want to be living? So I was so glad that you shared that part of your story because I think it's relatable for so many people. And while we wouldn't wish that moment of hardship on anyone, it seems like for you, it was deeply clarifying. So how do you think your life changed or how you shifted your life after the surgery? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, the biggest shift actually probably, if I'm being honest, came about two weeks before the surgery. So I, you know, I think maybe for the five years between diagnosis and surgery, I was very, very private about what I was going through behind mm -hmm. the scenes. I didn't really share about the MRIs every six months. I didn't talk about uh, my symptoms. I hid it. I hid it as best I could, again, out of this fear of being vulnerable, this fear of being pitied, this fear that somehow the hardest parts of my story would become my identity. I was mm. so afraid mm. that people wouldn't see me for what I was doing in the world, but they would see me for what I was struggling with. And um, two weeks before, I, I kind of hit this really challenging and confronting realization 
that I was either going to have to be open and honest about what was going on, or I was going to risk the end of my story aligning with a lie, Mm -hmm. not being honest about what I was going through and just saying, oh, I got to take some time off work and people that I really loved, that I really cared about, maybe coming to find out that I was going through a lot I I never felt safe to share. And it was this moment where I was like, look, I'm either going to be honest and I'm going to rip this Band-Aid off. I'm going to do it or I'm I'm going to allow myself to and again this was my challenge in my unique situation but continue to be a coward mm. continue to be afraid continue to allow that to be the the person in control mm. the fear in control mm. and so I think I really changed significantly not even from the surgery and the recovery although that was definitely you know a difficult and trying season but it was the moment i decided to be honest about what i was going through i shared it for the first time about like i said 2 weeks before surgery and it definitely changed the trajectory of my entire life mm-hmm. because i all again like all of the fears that i think i had just melted away with the single comments of but wait what kind of tumor do you have? I never thought I'd meet anyone that had the same kind to meeting one of the very first patients that ever went through and virtually meeting, I should say, because it it ended up being during the pandemic, but one of the very first patients that ever went through the surgery that I went through. And because of her, truly because of her bravery and taking this huge risk of doing this surgery for the first, being the first one, now it is such a routine, although it is brain surgery, but such a routine brain surgery because of her bravery and having that opportunity to come full circle because she heard about me on Instagram. I mean, you name it, it changed everything about my life. It's mm-hmm. the reason I got as oddly enough, a, a, my first book, you know, offer for, for a deal, um, which we can talk about. Although I subsequently turned it down, which we can also talk about. <laughs> it really, I think, was was a moment where I realized, you know, that I could show up and be my full self and that I would also be okay with the people that didn't like that. That mm-hmm. I could be not even okay, but perhaps better off. That, and I talk about this a little bit in Gutsy, um, although not in this context, but it certainly was the origin of where I understood it. You know, the the realization that there is something worse than people not agreeing with you, not liking you, um, criticizing you, you name it. And that is living a life that truly is not yours. Mm -hmm. That is shrinking and bending and molding and trying to hold yourself into some more palatable version of you Mm -hmm. rather than just being who you are and being willing to be vulnerable about the challenges that you're walking through. You know, I I realized, I think, through that fear and overcoming that fear and also meeting new fears that living a life, you know, based on other people's expectations, opinions, and shrinking was just a life I wasn't willing to um, be a part of anymore, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't a risk I was willing to take. Mm -hmm. I would rather step forward boldly and let the consequences be what they may. And and it ended up being such a positive outcome on the other side Mm -hmm. from the people that I met to just... The opportunities that evolved from that, the learnings I had, I didn't have to go through it alone. I was able to bring my community along for the journey. And and then in the subsequent years that followed, just how many people then, because of me sharing my story, were able to reconnect and to share stories of their own, 
whether they were very, very similar or just knew they could be vulnerable with me because I would understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that leads into the IVF um, experience as well. Um, Similar to, to you, we went through IVF and well, somehow we ended up having our son naturally. Um, my, our IVF experience is what, um, I ended up writing my first book about and I was terrified to share. I didn't know, I didn't know how it would be received. I felt like, oh gosh, the whole world is going to know about my private parts. (laughs) And I was just like, oh my goodness. Um, but I found exactly what you were just sharing that as soon as I opened up, other people were coming forward, close friends that I didn't even know had experienced their own infertility struggles. And then women reaching out from all over going, I didn't know what was going on post-surgery and then I Googled the symptoms and one of your articles popped up and then I knew what was happening in my body and it helped me make this next step to call this doctor and blah, blah, blah. And it was such a, a net of support and community that I feel so glad, but uh, leading up to it, it's scary to share yeah. vulnerable stories. So you not only shared your health journey, but then you also shared your infertility journey as well. And what what happened as you were sharing that journey? Yeah, I mean, I, as I was sharing it, I'm. By the way, I should say with my son, I waited until after we had a positive pregnancy test to share. Mm-hmm. And with my daughter, I shared throughout the messy process. Um, I shared every failed cycle. I shared, you know, my own tears, the disappointment, how it really felt to be every month showing up, praying for a miracle and being disappointed over and over and over again. And when we went through IVF yet again, shared that entire journey and shared my, my daughter was our only five day blastocyst that we had. And, and she's, too. And so I think it was, it was a a lesson for me, but I also really believe like it was a gift. It was a gift in my life as much as, again, I would never want to wish the journey on anyone. I would love to like, I wouldn't want to go back and repeat it by any means, but just as any difficult scenario that we go through, I'm a different person on the other side. And in telling that story, I think I also allowed the people that wanted to be a part of following it, that wanted, or perhaps even my my closest friends and family that wanted to have a little bit more understanding of what I was going through for them to change alongside me, mm-hmm. right? I think stories really give us the ability to lean into empathy and to be human with one another. And in the same way that I, like, it sounds like you might've experienced too, was so afraid to share about IVF in particular and worried about what would people say? What would they think? Coming from, I grew up in a sort of more conservative Christian background. And so there was just so much fear of being ostracized and fear of, you know, a lot of things. And what was really fascinating for me, I think, again, was in sharing the stories, not so much the diagnosis or the procedure, but the stories, the humanness, the struggle. I was met with far less of the things I feared and far more of the things I would have hoped for because I do believe there is power in telling our stories. And I believe that oftentimes through our stories, we connect with others in deeper and uh, more meaningful ways. 
Yes, 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 yes. And I love just hearing about like the two different experiences, like with your son waiting and then with your daughter Mm -hmm. sharing throughout and just kind of being able to compare and to really see the empathy part of it that you were just talking about. For us, I realized that as we were going through all this, it was such an indicator that anyone you see on the street might be walking around with a much heavier weight than you could even possibly fathom. And they're just smiling, trying to go about their day. But it's almost as if I suddenly saw past that in a lot of people. And I was going, hmm, I wonder what you're hurting with. Because if we're walking around trying to do our jobs and and go about our days, but we're carrying this deep pain, then who knows? I'm sure other people are experiencing deep hardship. And you kind of start looking at the world differently, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. I completely agree. You know, you never have any idea truly what somebody else is going through. And in Gutsy, I talk specifically about this through the context of courage in saying that, you know, the world will often applaud external, you know, manifestations of courage, the bungee jumper, the Olympian, the, you know, I joke, I'm like getting a tattoo, like whatever it is for someone that looks like courage, right? If the world can see it, they'll applaud it. But for many of us, Courage often happens in moments where no one else can see it, that sometimes the bravest things we do in our lives will never be applauded or um, received with validation and approval. Sometimes the bravest things we can do, you know, is just to get out of bed in the morning, Mm -hmm. to try again another day, to look in the mirror and love ourselves. Like these are brave acts for Mm -hmm. so many people. And again, I I love what you said. When you go through something like that, it can either, I think, make us feel bitter to the world Mm -hmm. or it can do the opposite, which is what I'm hearing from you. And I also can express that I experienced, which is to look at the world through empathetic eyes, Mm -hmm. right? To see past the masks that we wear, to try to hide the pain that we're feeling beneath Mm -hmm. and instead kind of try to remember that each of us are walking through something incredibly difficult, potentially, um, that the world may never see. Mm. I think those two words, the try again part is huge because we do sometimes want to just throw our hands up and go, what the heck? (laughs) Why me? Why again? Why? And so Mm. the, the bravery and courage to keep moving forward, that alone, as you said, can be the biggest act of bravery. And I love Gutsy for many reasons, but that was one of the biggest ones that you shone a light on all of the internal work that isn't the tattoo or the bungee jump. It's just all of these mindset shifts that we have to consider in order to live gutsy lives. And so much of your book is about that internal work. And you pose these beautiful questions to make us reflect on how we're talking to ourselves, really what's at the bottom of our fear, how we can move forward, take risks. So much of it was like a therapeutic session. And I I don't mean that as therapy, but like a very inner work journey that you described, which I greatly, greatly appreciated. And you mentioned in terms of writing, you mentioned that at one point you got an offer 
for a book mm-hmm. deal and you had a big decision to make. And this was one of the big acts of bravery that you, you discuss in the book. So I'd love for you to share that. Yes. So a little bit of background. I, when I was very, very young, had always, I dreamt of becoming a writer. I always thought that there would be a world where I would grow up and write. I was even the nerdy kid that started our high school newspaper because we didn't have one. Like this was, <laughs> it was a core dream. And then like a lot of dreams, things shifted in my world. And instead I became an entrepreneur and I focused on different dreams. And I genuinely thought that I would never have the opportunity to write a book. Like I I genuinely thought that that had passed, that I had made a decision. I had picked a different path. There was no going back. And so that background is important because I think you need to understand, and we all do. I mean, if you think back to the younger you and the dreams that you had for your life and maybe some of the ones that never came true, there's a deep longing there, you know, and I, I felt that sort of that I refused to acknowledge, but I felt it very, very deeply. So when I started sharing on social media more vulnerably and I started opening up, my community started to grow and I received an email out of the blue, completely random from a top publisher, mm-hmm. essentially saying, hey, one of the editors had been following me or found me on Instagram, had you know been watching and reading my captions and basically came forward and said, I really think you have a book in you. I really, I see the way people respond to how you write and I would love the opportunity to work with you and bring this book to life. And so I started you know, first of all, freaking out because this was a huge dream, a huge dream. And here it was just being, it felt like being handed to me, right? Mm-hmm. Something that I had completely written off and now was having this one in a billion opportunity to potentially do. And I remember the day that the acquisitions editor sent over the, the initial contract and I had it in my inbox and I opened it and I it was like this equal parts fear and excitement, mm-hmm. but there was some level of hesitation. I, I just, in my gut, was feeling like, I don't know. I, you know, I'm reading down into the nuance of it. And it was not the, the book that they kind of outlined wanting me to write wasn't entirely in alignment with the book. I guess I had always imagined writing in my own mind. And there was so kind of many layers to it. I didn't fully understand the contract. So I don't know what came over me, but I decided to be very bold (laughs) and tweet at one of my favorite writers, John Acuff, Mm -hmm. um, who I absolutely adore and love. And for anyone curious, yes, he is as wonderful as he seems on the internet. (laughs) Uh, You know, and I, I just kind of reached out to him and I said, hey, this is the situation. I don't even know what to do. And John being someone that, you know, is a best-selling author and has a deep love for unrepresented authors and supporting them in their journeys said, okay, don't sign anything before you sign anything. Chat with my literary agents. Just they'll chat with you for 15 minutes. Just tell them what's going on and maybe they can give you some advice. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, they did. And um, there was a lot of conversation that went back and forth that day on my first call with the Yates and Yates team, which then went on to become my literary agency. But the biggest part of that conversation was my agent, Karen, saying, Natalie, but is this the book you really want to write? Yes, there's a deal. Mm-hmm. Yes, turning it down sounds absolutely nuts. Like, <laughs> I get it. I know, I know. And there's no guarantee you'll ever get another one. Mm-hmm. There's no guarantee any publisher will ever want to publish you again. Mm-hmm. However, the real question here isn't whether you should sign or not should sign based on fear of whether this opportunity will ever come around again. It's more about, is this the book that you are meant to write? Mm-hmm. 
because she's like, I'm sensing a hesitancy here that you should be more excited about this. If this was like, if this was truly 100% in alignment, you know, we can work out the legal details, but there's something else. And I said, sure enough to her, you're right. This isn't, it's a great offer. It's an incredible publisher. And the book outlines a cool book, but it's just not mine to write. Like Uh, I'm not the author to put this one to page. And I knew it. I knew it in my bones. And so she said, if you're willing to be brave, like we'd love to come alongside you and be brave with you. And I said, okay. And I turned down the book deal, which at that moment, there was a lot of opinion given to me that this was a terrible decision to do. Like I should never have turned it down, you know, like, no, I'm never going to see an offer again. And instead I went and drafted up the proposal for my first book, Built to Belong, which ended up resulting in signing a deal with Hachette through the Worthy imprint and, you know, the rest is history. But it all kind of hinged on, I think, that moment of being willing to let go of something good because I had a dream of something better for me, right? Like something more aligned to what I was supposed to be doing. Again, that offer would have been perfect for somebody else. That offer would have been exactly what somebody else perhaps was looking for. But I I knew that there was a different book in me. I knew there was a different journey in me. And I... I took the risk. And in my case, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I did. Mm. Well, as a writer, I'm very biased, but that was one of my favorite chapters because I think it is a prime example of a key act of bravery of saying no, when you don't have a plan B, when there's no guarantee that the other better thing will come along. It's one thing to say no, when you've got something in your back pocket, but when there's nothing else and you're saying no anyway, it it, it takes a test of your true integrity. And that is hard. That is hard to do that. And I was listening to Martha Beck's Gathering Room podcast the other day. And she said something. I'm gonna I'm paraphrasing because I don't know the exact quote, but she was talking about longing and desire. And she was saying something to the effect of like longing is this feeling that you have because you know the the dream that awaits and just time hasn't caught up yet. So it's like you knew the book that you wanted to write in your core and it wasn't that one, but it's, it's almost like part of your conscious has a clue about what it should be. And the offer did not match that, right? <laughs> so um, the book that they had outlined in the offer. So I sat with that chapter for quite a while and I was like, that is a core act of bravery. And so as you were working with the Yates and Yates team, how did you all uh, figure out not only Gutsy, but your first book as well, Built to Belong? How did did that process come about? Yes. So we went through a truly formal proposal process after that. So we kind of went from, you know, a deal in hand to wipe the slate clean, Mm -hmm. back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. Let's actually craft a proposal. And so that was a new, a completely new experience for me. Although I will say writing a book proposal feels a heck of a lot like a business plan, which I am good, like that (laughs) I'm good at as an entrepreneur, crafting business plans and strategies. And I even, gosh, we include, I included like a marketing playbook plan that was, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was over 20 pages long, like my marketing plan that accompanied the book proposal plan. But, you know, the proposal was an outline of the book, a pitch of the book shared. I think I included 
three chapters, two or three completed chapters in there as well. And it was just a process of doing it, like just doing it. And I'm a weird writer in the sense that most of my friends that write, you know, will carve out a little bit of time every day to write. Mm. And they do it as sort of a repeating practice. Being someone who is a little bit neurospicy, as you may say, and has ADHD. I Um, I, The sort of categorical switching in my day is where I actually lose a lot of momentum. So I have to write by locking myself in a room for days at a time, and I'm not exaggerating. And maybe someone out there will will be like, that's me too. But I rarely come across anyone that has experienced uh, or had success with this method. So this is maybe an example of what not to do, although it works really well for me. With the proposal, with the manuscript, I genuinely, I got a hotel room and I locked myself in a room for however long it took to get it done. I ordered DoorDash to the room. (laughs) I forced myself to create and more so with the manuscript than the actual proposal process because the proposal thankfully had some back and forth and, you know, we crafted it over several weeks and it's a little bit different with the manuscript. It was like, I just have to get a first draft on the page. I think my biggest hurdle in doing that was acknowledging that the first thing you write can be absolutely horrible. Oh, yeah. There's so much perfectionism that I had brought with me from the entrepreneurial world and like carried through the door of that tiny hotel room of mm-hmm. thinking, you know, if it's not good, I can't write it mm-hmm. versus shifting into a mindset that's like everything that's going to come out of my mouth the first time is going to be horrible. Mm-hmm. Like I, I may not think it at the time. I may actually think it's quite good. But in reality, like zooming out, mm-hmm. it's going to go through so many iterations until we can get to a point where it's decent enough to be considered for publication. And so it was, a, I think, a matter of just doing it, of forcing myself to do it, of not even like tooting out the distractions so much as not enabling them to exist mm-hmm. and carving out that random chunk of time where I could be alone with my own mind long enough mm-hmm. to pull out the pieces that I needed. But also, and again, I should say a lot of my books include references to psychology and neuroscience and citations mixed in with the storytelling and the advice because I am nerdy and because I want I want data or like give mm-hmm. me data or don't give it to me mm-hmm. right I'm one of those so there was some prelim research but all of that to say I think the process was truly about just committing to doing it yeah. um, and committing to doing it imperfectly mm-hmm. embracing that new perspective and mindset shift on the creation process mm. yeah. Uh, the eliminating distraction part is so key. I have both experiences with my first book. I was an everyday kind of writer, two hours, just trying to every day, get it down, get it down. And then for my second book, it was like, there was no consistency. I had to just have chunks of time in these chunks. I would just do as much as I could. And the core part of it though, in either case, whether you're a daily writer or holding yourself up somewhere is the elimination. (laughs) Like that is half of the battle of the writing process is eliminating, 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 and just doing without the critic taking over. The critic will always be there, but they cannot take over the process. That's why I love big magic so much with Elizabeth Gilbert when she says like, you know, they can be in the car and go on the road trip, but they absolutely cannot be at the wheel and certainly have no control of the radio. So, (laughs) Oh, I love this. Well, 
one last bit I want to cover is about your entrepreneurial journey. And I know we could talk for five hours about that, mm-hmm. um, but maybe you can kind of give some recent highlights of ways that you've been brave in your professional life. Oh, well, a big one comes to mind. <laughs> so um, uh, the highest of high level backgrounds on, on my entrepreneurial journey, I spent the first eight years of my career as a wedding photographer. And that's what catapulted me into small business ownership. I found that to be the most fulfilling job in the entire world and yet the most lonely job. Mm. And I think uncovering that loneliness and then, again, we talk about mindset shifts, but the mindset shift of, well, who's going to come fix this, mm-hmm. you know, to I'm going to fix this, mm-hmm. right? The the waiting for a hero to come swooping in to remove the loneliness and isolation of the entrepreneurial experience you know, shifting into instead, well, what can I do about it for me and my community? And that happened several years into running that small business, which was the creation and co-founding of a community called the Rising Tide Society, which was acquired by a tech startup in San Francisco named Honeybook, where I worked for eight years after that. Mm-hmm. And so that's the important background. I absolutely loved working at Honeybook. I loved my job. I loved the team. I loved the platform. I was so comfortable in my role. I had launched a podcast. It was killing it. <laughs> like, you know, we, we, it was, everything was great. And yet I had this opportunity to join two of my best friends at their startup called Flowdesk, which I had been, you know, cheering on from the sidelines since the day it started and had been a formal advisor as well for just as long. And I took that leap and I left my job that I had grown to absolutely love over eight years and joined the team at Flowdesk as their head of community running the marketing organization. And it has been the most terrifying (laughs) and beautiful and perfect move I could have made. Um, And again, like it's one of those things where I think on the outside, it's easy to be like, yes, she's like, go girl. She's Mm -hmm. doing it. She's, Mm -hmm. you know, joining the executive team of this startup. And yet on the inside, it's all of these fears of letting go of what is known, letting go of what is comfortable, what is familiar, what feels safe and embracing something that is new, that is unknown, but yet is exactly where you know you need to be. Mm. And that's what the past several weeks of my life have been. And saying I'm glad that I made the leap is an understatement. Mm. You know, I am learning more about myself. I'm being challenged in new ways. And I'm still getting to fight for small business, which is my passion. As I I always say, like, I'm a mama bear for small business. I went from being the business owner to seeing that business owners desperately need an advocate in this world. They need people fighting for them and championing them because so often they are the consistent underdog. Mm -hmm. And I love that I get to do that every day. So Mm. it's been a big, brave leap from a career perspective into, you know, this brand new role as tech exec when I swore I would never work for anyone else (laughs) when I was a wedding photographer. I even once, by the way, I've never had an interview, a formal interview in my entire life, not one, Mm -hmm. which is like a weird thing about me. (laughs) But I told Honeybook CEO when we were first chatting way back in the day, a decade ago now, that I actually used the term unemployable to describe myself. I said, I'm unemployable. And now I'm, you know, running the entire marketing organization at Flowdesk. So Say what you will, um, uh-huh. but and I actually still believe in my bones. I'm fairly unemployable. <laughs> I've just happened to find uh, 
companies that embrace my entrepreneurial spirit and uh, strangeness. But uh, yeah, uh -huh. that's been the latest big, bold leap. And I'm glad I did it. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I have found that when writers put their books out, that somehow their lives give them like a true test. They're like, oh, gut you're going to put out gutsy? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's like picking a word of the year, you know, I don't know if anyone does that, yeah. but it's like, you're, you're basically daring the world. You're daring the universe. You're oh, yeah. daring the higher powers. Like you're basically saying, um, this is my word of the year. And then the world returns with, okay, bet, you know, and I'll give you a very specific example. I've always done word of the year. My last true word of the year though was in 2021 because in 2020, I learned my lesson <laughs> heading into 2020. I chose the word home <gasps> No, as my word of the year. Yeah. I did. That's a that's a true fact. There is proof. There is social media evidence that before we were locked at home in quarantine, I thought I'd be metaphorical and uh, poetic and do home with this long metaphor about how I needed to uncover what it meant to be home. I had been when we sold our house, we were going on the road. We were going to be nomads for the year of 2020. And we made it as far as March 5th before we had to fly home and be stuck at home. So anyway, you're right. Yes. So Natalie. <laughs> I was working on a book three, four years ago that I was going to title Home is in Your Soul. <laughs> no. <laughs> For pub date, March 2020. But we had, too soon. We still too, I know, soon. too soon. But then we had the opposite thing where we had just bought our forever home and the pandemic sometime within the first nine months were like, let's buy an Airstream camper and go on the road and just live on the road for many, many months. And then we we're like, oh, let's sell our forever home and go somewhere. Where it was like every test so of home possible. <laughs> I was like, universe. I understand now. Uh -huh. I'm not going to choose a book title because you are just going to test me. <laughs> oh, this makes me so happy. I'm glad I'm not alone in this. Well, to close, I wonder if there's any nugget of advice about being gutsy or brave that you could share with a writer or an entrepreneur or just any human that has served you well in your life. Yes. Here's what I need you to hear. The world really does need what you've got. Mm. The world desperately, I want you to think about that word, desperately mm. needs what you've got and only you have to offer. You know, when when we hold ourselves back from living the life that we know is meant for us because we are afraid, we're not just robbing ourselves of a future that we could have. We are robbing the world of the impact that only we can make. And so if you are listening to this, you are a writer, you are an entrepreneur, I just want you to know that those desires have not been put on your heart by accident, mm. you know? And just like you said, and the context of longing, when I was young, dreamt of being a writer, none of that is an accident. None of your story is without potential purpose and mm. significance and meaning. Lean into that. Be willing to be brave. The world needs you. And you might be shocked at just how many people you inspire to also be brave in the process. Well. I can't think of a better way to end. That was perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on today. This was a delight. Thank you for having me. Oh, my friends, that was such a powerful conversation. And I want you to be thinking about your own expressions of gutsy 
What does that mean to you? The inner bravery that you might need right now? What are some paths that you've been going down that just don't feel quite in alignment for you and you have a choice to make? Maybe today's the day that you just kind of face the fact that there's an area of your life that maybe isn't fitting the way that it should or that you want, or maybe there's an area where you've grown really comfortable and you know that you are meant to expand and grow. Maybe today is the day that you take some leaps, make some big decisions or some little ones. (laughs) We can start small too. Either way, I hope that this conversation inspired you to get a little gutsy, to get a little brave. And we want to know what your gutsy thing is. So share with us on Instagram and tag us. Natalie is at Natalie Frank and I am at Needing Kenny Johnstone. And I'll put everything in the show notes so that you can link up with us. But we want to know. And if you have a gutsy friend share this episode with them and let them know that you think they're really brave and courageous. Let's inspire a whole community of gutsy women. I know a gutsy woman too. Her name is Michelle Rado. She's my producer and she's incredible. Thank you, Michelle, for all of your hard work on this show. Remember everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.